Leros. Say it with me. Leros. One more time. Leros. Now let me tell you how you can use this ancient Greek word. Three days after Jesus was crucified, a group of women head to the tomb with burial spices, expecting to anoint the body. And on their way, they're only concerned about how to get the stone out of the way. Now, you should know this is strike one against the resurrection account. Women couldn't even testify in court in the ancient world, and yet the scriptures seem to like to remind us that women are the first proclaimers of the gospel. Ladies, can I get an amen? amen. But even in a culture that would reject this message because women were the first to discover the empty tomb, the scriptures don't try to hide the facts. The scriptures report it, even if this will make it difficult for many to accept as true. Now, when the women arrive, they're expecting, like I said, an empty tomb. They're expecting difficulty moving the stone away. Yet there's an angel, and the angel essentially says, what are you doing among the dead? He's not here. He's risen. And this is world-altering news. And so the women rush back to where the apostles were hiding up. And among these women was Mary, the mother of Jesus herself. Can you imagine? Your son is alive. He's not just your son. He's the savior of the world. He's alive. And they rush back and they tell the disciples. And we read in Luke's gospel, these words seemed to them an idle tale and they did not believe them. And here, is it, here it is. The word should be uh, leros. So the, wor the words seemed to them leros. But our translation is too polite. It's too Anglican. Uh, idle tales isn't really what that word means. It's garbage, nonsense, gossip in a demeaning sort of way. So the words seem to them, leros. Humbug if you're Scrooge, bollocks if you're British, or as the professor Anna Florence Carter bluntly puts it, the apostles essentially say these women are full of it. But when you're told that Jesus rose from the dead, what response do you really expect? Dead stuff stays dead. Dead stuff stays in the ground or in the urn. In this story, it must just be wishful thinking, superstition, confusion. It can't be historical fact, Leros. And this is the almost reflexive reaction to the news of the resurrection. It's how many of us respond still. When I was a teenager and I met a Christian who first told me, hey, I believe in a physical resurrection, I laughed at them and I delighted making fun of them. Leros, you're out of your mind. And many continue to cry out, Leros. And although this reaction is where many people stop, maybe it's where you've stopped, this is not where the story ends. Today, we're gonna to look at what happens next. On the very same day, what happens on the road to Emmaus? Two disciples, one named Cleopas and another unnamed, are heading home from Jerusalem. And they're talking about everything that took place from the crucifixion to the empty tomb. And they're trying to make sense of it, but they can't make sense of it. And how could they unless Jesus himself explains it to them? And so if you're here this morning and you're trying to make sense of this resurrection business, why do Christians after two millennia still insist on a physical resurrection, Jesus coming back to life after three days? This passage is for you. And here's the big idea of Easter. Jesus is alive. Is it true, though? 
And there's two ways of responding to this, from the ground up or from Christ with us. Jesus is alive. You can respond from the ground up or from Christ with us. And we're going to look at these two different responses. So if you have a Bible, open it up to Luke chapter 24. If you don't own a Bible, I mean this, take one of our great church Bibles home with you. We we would love for you to take that. Uh, Everything will also be on the screen. Luke is a historian, and he writes in the last chapter of his gospel in verse 13. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him, and he said to them, what is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still looking sad. Then one of them named Cleopas answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened in there these days? And he said to them, what things? Let's begin by explaining the resurrection from the ground up. Let's try to make sense of the resurrection from the ground up. The risen Jesus has this interesting habit of going incognito. It's not that he just threw on a scarf and pulled a Clark Kent and put on some glasses. It's that in his power, Davey really liked that image. In his power, he intentionally remained unrecognizable. And this seems to be part and parcel of how he appears during this this season. Uh, Mary in the garden, uh, disciples by a lake, and now these two disciples on the road. Each encounter starts veiled. It starts confusing. It starts subtle, but then it ultimately moves into surprise. And perhaps Jesus appears incognito in this way as a reminder for us. Because often the Lord has been walking with us, working with us, engaging with us, tinkering with our souls long before we ever come to acknowledge it. And we're, as we're all tempted to ask, where is Jesus? Perhaps the answer is right here. Right here. We just don't have the eyes yet to see. And so perhaps we need to be praying, open our eyes to help us see how you're alive and you're present with us in every moment. What we do know is that these travelers don't initially identify Jesus, as Luke writes, their eyes were kept from recognizing him. But another way of thinking about this is, not yet. Not yet. Jesus has some work to do with them first, so not yet. They won't be able to open their own eyes. Jesus will open their eyes in due time. But what we see from this message is that there's some things he wants to work out with them first, so not yet. And as I've mentioned, uh, these two disciples, they're walking down the street. They're talking about all these events from the crucifixion to the empty tomb. And incognito, Jesus joins them. And he says, what is this that you've been talking about? And the question, it stops them dead in their tracks. They're dismayed. They're deeply saddened. And they're totally heartsick about it all. And they're shocked that this person doesn't immediately assume they're talking about everything that just went down. Cleopas asks, and this is how I like to imagine him asking, are you the only visitor that doesn't know what took place these days? Like, it's just so condescending, you know? And do you see the assumption here, though? And he didn't probably talk like that. I don't have historical basis. But the assumption is that everyone in Jerusalem, everyone in Jerusalem knows what went down. Everybody's talking about it. If you were on the streets in Vancouver on June 16th, 2011, and you asked anyone on the streets, what you talking about? 
they would look at, look, look at you like you're mad. They'd say, we're talking about the riot that took place last night, obviously. Oh no, why were people rioting? You don't know? No, the Canucks lost an important hockey game. Why were people rioting? You know, Canadian problems. But some events are big enough to catch everyone's attention. They become the talk of the town. Cleopas and his friend are talking about Jesus of Nazareth. What else would they be talking about? And it's what everyone is talking about, and the historical evidence backs this up too. The pagan historian Thalos, around 50 AD in his histories, mentions a darkness coinciding with the crucifixion of Jesus. He explains it naturally as a coincidental eclipse, but it supports the biblical account that darkness covered the land as Jesus died. The Roman historians Cornelius, Tacitus, Pliny the Younger, uh, Suetonius, they all speak of Christ's crucifixion. They don't believe that he was the Messiah, but they all record it. So Jesus of Nazareth was most certainly crucified. And then we have the Jewish historian Josephus. He accounts for the crucifixion too, but he also mentions that this Jesus movement stubbornly persisted in the belief that there was a resurrection. And so beyond the scriptures, we have evidence saying something took place in Jerusalem and the world paid attention. What happened over that Passover weekend made the history books. And it even inspired these writings, Luke's gospel. So how then could this traveler not know about the event that caught the attention of the then known world? But Jesus simply responds, what things? So they lay it out for him. Look at verses 19 through 24. What things? The things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who is a prophet mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Now let's remember, a week prior, what we now call Palm Sunday, Jesus arrived in Jerusalem and he entered into the city on a donkey. And many people received him as their king, the long-awaited Messiah who would establish God's everlasting kingdom. People were excited. They were expecting an inauguration, but it quickly turned into an assassination. Jesus was brutally tortured and murdered. And as Cleopas and his friend recount this horrifying events, there is something terribly tragic about their use of the past perfect tense. Yes, you're going to get a grammar lesson. The past perfect tense. They had hoped. They had hoped, but do so no longer. They had hoped this was the one who would bring salvation. They had hoped this was the one who would bring justice. They had hoped that this was the one that would finally set the world to rights, but now he's dead. Their hope could not withstand suffering and death. But they continued. Yes, and beside all this, it's now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen visions of angels who said that Jesus was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. This is really interesting, isn't it? From this, we can conclude that these two disciples, they were 
a part of this movement of Jesus. They had inside knowledge. They were friends with the apostles. They had been following the movement. They had heard Jesus teach. They were there when the women rushed back, wide-eyed, saying, the tomb is empty. Jesus is alive. And you have to remember in that account, the angel reminds the women of what Jesus had taught. And these two disciples seem to remember it themselves. The Son of Man must be delivered over to the hands of sinners, be crucified, and on the third day, rise again. Now, they're looking at the exact amount of time Jesus told them would pass before he rises from the dead. But dead stuff stays dead. Jesus couldn't have meant it. Surely it was just hyperbole like the many other times he used hyperbole. Maybe he's talking about some sort of spiritual reality that we can't see in the physical realm, but surely dead stuff stays dead. He couldn't have meant it. Once again, Leros. Three days later, some women are saying Jesus is alive. Leros. Some others went to verify their story, but all they found was an empty tomb. Say it with me now. Leros. We're getting a sense of their situation. They're hopeless, deeply saddened, and even confused about the idle tales that are circling within their group. And so rather than stay in Jerusalem any longer, they're done with it. This is where the center of activity was. And so they walk away. They start heading home to Emmaus. They're trying to leave it behind. Enough is enough. Jesus, he may have been a prophet, but clearly he wasn't a messiah. But there's this beautiful hint tucked away in their recollection of everything that went down. The women encounter the empty tomb and the women see. Others encounter the empty tomb and do not see. And these two disciples are among those who still do not see. They do not see the truth that Jesus is physically alive, ironically, when Jesus himself is walking beside them. And perhaps they don't see because their expectations were off. They expected a different kind of Jesus a conquering king, a political ruler, a zealot who would liberate them from Roman oppression and rule. They expected a Jesus to fulfill their own expectations and they expected any other explanation of an empty tomb other than the simplest one, Jesus rose from the dead. And I want to suggest that expectations might be impeding our sight too. We expect Jesus to make sense on our terms. We expect Jesus to conform to our ideals. We expect Jesus to uphold our own values. We expect Jesus to keep the status quo of culture and not challenge us. And when we encounter a Jesus that disrupts these things, it defies our expectations. We expect God to work on our own timeline. I think that's the biggest one. God either shows up too late or too soon. When God shows up too late, it's because you've been praying and saying, God, show up, and he doesn't answer. God shows up too late. But then sometimes God shows up, and you say, no, you've shown up too soon. I was ready to become a follower maybe a year from now, or maybe on my deathbed, but not now. And sometimes our expectations of God's timeline blinds our sight. And last of all, we expect there must be some sort of logical explanation for this empty tomb. Just look at a library. There's got to be some other explanation other than the simplest one that Jesus Christ rose from the dead. 
You see, when we try to explain the resurrection from the ground up, the conclusion will always be leros, idle tales. So how does anyone come to believe this news? How does anyone come to see that Jesus is alive? James Rezegui writes, until Easter is seen from God's point of view, God's ways remain imperceptive. Until Easter is seen from God's point of view, God's ways remain imperceptive. You see, we discover there's two ways of approaching these events that took place in ancient Palestine, from the ground up or from Christ with us. And so now let's consider the resurrection from Christ with us. As we see in this passage, our explanations will hit limits. They'll stop short. But there's also something so beautiful and reassuring about this passage. These two followers, all of his followers, they're, they're in existential shock. Can you imagine witnessing what they saw, beholding the horror of it all? Trying to make sense of how all these hopes, all this buildup led to this, the end. Their hopes are shattered, not even remotely put together. And they're trying to make sense of how do I now live? And they're walking on this road and Jesus walks with them because he is not a God who is aloof, but a God who meets us in our suffering because he has carried our griefs. And he says, this is where you're going to find me. He doesn't try to blanket over their pain. He walks with them in it. And he asks questions. And finally, the time comes for Jesus to call Leros on their interpretation of the events. Look at verses 25 through 27. Uh, we read, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Foolish here isn't moron. He's not saying you morons. It's, it's more like obtuse. He's saying you're slow on the uptake. How slow can you be? They're foolish because they're trying to explain the resurrection from the ground up. It's foolish to ex attempt to explain what can't be explained by our own understanding alone. And this is happening because their hearts are like molasses, thick, tasty molasses. You know, they're, they're slow of heart. And the heart here is not in reference to emotions. It's not in reference to the things we feel, although it includes that. It's about their innermost being, their inner commitments and dispositions and attitudes that determine how they live. And so slow of heart means that they're slow to center their lives around the ways of God. Slow of heart means they've heard the teachings of Jesus and yet they still can't believe they might actually be true of reality. They can't orient their entire inner world around this truth. They're slow of heart. Is anyone slow of heart this morning? Is your heart like molasses? Maybe there is a sweetness to your struggle with Christ and honesty there, but is it also slow? Is it also refusing to center your lives around this truth? And it's okay to admit it, but if we are slow of heart, we have to acknowledge that it's likely a symptom from trying to explain the resurrection from the ground up alone. But here's the good news. Even in their dismay, even in their pain, even in their slowness of heart, where do you find Jesus? 
with them. He's not waiting for them to get their act together. He's walking with them. And he's working slowly and patiently to enliven their hearts. He says, look, if Jesus was a prophet, on that basis alone, we should have expected him to suffer and die. Because if you flip through the pages of the Old Testament, faithful prophets, it usually doesn't work out well for them. But more so, Jesus says it was necessary, absolutely necessary for the Christ, for the Messiah to suffer before entering glory. And how does he prove it? He turns to how God has spoken in the past. He opens up scripture. Right here, and I saw it on your face. Right here is where Jesus loses many of us. We can't trust the scriptures. Or maybe more honestly, we won't trust the scriptures. First, we we need to recognize that the so-called religious nature of Christian writings does not diminish their value as historical sources. 50 years ago, there was a trend in saying the Gospels, they don't account for any truth. They're, They're fabrications. But that movement has since had its heyday. And you can go and read secular scholars, agnostic scholars, even antagonistic scholars towards Christianity who will say that the Gospels are trustworthy historical sources about the life and death of Jesus of Nazareth. You might not believe but the beliefs that are intertwined within them, but they are historical and reliable records. And if you want some sources, I'd be happy to share those with you. But secondly, and this is the more challenging issue with scriptures, the scriptures themselves demonstrate that they're not concerned about credibility on the world's terms. Scripture is not concerned with credibility on the world's terms. Remember who found the empty tomb? Women. In the second century, Celsus wrote that the New Testament was untrustworthy because women are hysterical. And unsurprisingly, he died single. And the the role of women in this account undermined the credibility of the New Testament. And this shows us a few things. And I'll say it again. It shows us that God is for women and God is for empowering women. And it also shows us that God isn't the least bit concerned about getting ancient Rome's stamp of approval. And he's not concerned about getting our cultural moment's stamp of approval either. And this is a difficult truth for us to accept. But when you examine the scriptures for yourself, you'll discover they report the truth. They don't twist the facts. They keep societally embarrassing details like this. They report that Peter totally bombed it. Why would you report that about the leader you're trying to build a movement around? They keep other difficult details. They don't try to harmonize slight discrepancies. The scriptures are brutally honest because they're reporting truth. The question that the scriptures invite us to consider is, will we interpret everything from the ground up, always seeking to find some sort of way to explain what's going on here, or will we interpret them with Christ with us? And as we see, Jesus opens up the scriptures and he shows the disciples How everything God has ever written is always about him. How this whole story is leading up to this moment, leading up to explaining who he is, that he came into the world and he had to suffer. He had to die. He had to be rejected. He had to be the suffering servant, well acquainted with grief, bearing the sins of the world so that we might be forgiven and the whole world reconciled to God. He had to fulfill all of this to be God's everlasting king. But from the ground up, It just looks like things went awry. 
Christ was assassinated. But Jesus says, oh no, this was the plan. All throughout the Gospels, preceding this moment, he says, the Son of Man came into the world for this purpose. This was my desire. This was my calling. This is why I came to fulfill the will of God. And it wasn't that God the Father was imposing his will on God the Son. It was that they shared the same desire and will. And through his death on the cross, the true king of the universe demonstrates his power. And here's what's beautiful about the way he demonstrates it. And all of the things that are tearing apart this creation, whether it's suffering, whether it's sin, whether it's death, whether it's evil, God does not overcome these things with violence and force, rather through self-sacrificing love. So here's my question. What better person could explain the events that took place other than the person at the center of those events? What better person could explain what took place other than the person at the center of the events? And you might not trust the scriptures or you might choose not to trust the scriptures, but they're the only place we can go to hear the words from Jesus of Nazareth, to hear his own interpretation of the events, because what the apostles say and what Jesus himself says, is, you're witnesses. You're not chefs. You're not cooking up something. You're waiters. You're going out into the world and showing what I have said, what I have done. And so it's through perhaps the most epic Bible study of history, you know, that the disciples' imaginations are kindled, their hearts awaken, their hope slowly starting to come back together. But before they know it, it's night. And this stranger tries to keep walking on. And so they compel him, please stay with us. They show him a surprising hospitality. Do you see? Jesus walks with us. We don't always see it. But as he does, he quietly works alongside us. He begins to illuminate the scriptures. They start to make sense, even if we still wrestle with aspects of them. And we find ourselves showing him hospitality. Inviting him into our lives, inviting him into our homes, inviting him into our thought processes, even if we don't totally understand him yet or see him yet. Jesus is alive and he's always working in your life well before you identify it. And this is where the story, I think, gets really interesting. They persuade Jesus to stay as their guest, but he sits at the table as a host. It's pretty I'm trying to think of the right word on the spot. That's pretty something. And uh, he does something to finally open their minds, though. He does something so uniquely Jesus. Earlier in Luke's gospel, Jesus is on a mountainside with thousands of hungry people. Do you remember? Luke 9, thousands of hungry people. The disciples come to him. Jesus, how are we going to feed these people? Ah, give me a few scraps of bread. Jesus gets the scraps of bread, a couple of fish. And we read in Luke 9, 16, and taking the five loaves and the two fish, Jesus looked up to heaven, said a blessing over them. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the crowd. What happens here at the end of the gospel in verse 30? Jesus took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it. It's a pattern that is undeniably Jesus, and it evokes a deja vu-like experience. And what does it mean? The Jesus we discover throughout the pages of the Gospels remains one in the same. The suffering, the rejection, the horrific death, all the betrayals, 
he faced have not made him jaded or cynical or vengeful or done with us. His character remains the same. He's still passionate about loving people. He still shows hospitality. He still dines with sinners. He still gives his life. He still does what he has done. He still teaches what he has taught. And we're told that as he took bread in the way that he had done before and breaks it in the same way, then something happens. Look at verse 31. Then their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And then Jesus disappears. And they say to one another in verse 32, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? You see, their hearts were slow like molasses, but now they burn within them. Their eyes were closed, but now their eyes are open. They see Jesus for who he truly was and is. They're full of sadness, but now they're overwhelmed with Joy, it's not Leros, that's a ground-up experience. Leros is a ground-up experience, but the Christ with us experience is kara. Kara, say it with me, kara. It means joy. Look at verse 52. At the end of all of this, they worshiped him with great kara, with great joy. This is not just like an aloof state. This is a deep a motive state. It could hardly be described as Anglican. This is great, <laughs> robust joy. I feel like as an Anglican priest, I can mock myself. So the cynicism though, the skepticism, the doubt, it gives way to joy. This reality circulating and percolating around idle tales robs them of hope, robs them of joy, but then they encounter the risen Lord and joy overcomes them. It marks their existence. You see, when we allow Jesus himself to explain his death and resurrection, as he does through the scriptures, we experience great joy because that's his prayer. He wants his joy to be full in us. And joy is what ignites the feet of these two disciples. You see, they were done with Jerusalem. They are walking away, but now they turn around and hightail it back to the apostles. They find them in the upper room and they say, it's true. The empty tomb, it's, it's empty. Jesus is alive. We met him on the road. He talked to us. We invited him in for dinner. He broke bread in the same way we saw on the mountainside. Jesus, he's alive. We read the report in verse 34 and 35. It is true. It's not Leros. It's not idle tales, it's true. The Lord has risen and appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. And Luke writes in verses 36 and 45, while they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. And then in verse 45, then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. Jesus delights in this news about him. When people proclaim that Jesus is alive, Jesus shows up and confirms it. He endorses it. Now, of course, we're reading about a specific moment in the past. We're reading about a moment between the resurrection and the ascension to heaven when Jesus returns. And so it's easy for us to look at that and be like, well, it would have been really handy if Jesus kept showing up this way. 
Like if Jesus popped up in that middle seat right there and I was like, hey guys, a lot of you would probably believe in him. A lot of you wouldn't. But we don't have to settle for seconds because Jesus still shows up. In his last meal with his disciples, he said to them, look, I'm going away. And they got really upset about that. He says, no, no, you're misunderstanding. I'm going away. I'm going to die. I'm going to rise. But I'm going to return to the Father. I'm not going to be physically present with you on earth anymore. I'm going away, but it's better for you that I'm going away. And here's why. The Father and I will send the Spirit, the Comforter, the Helper, who will lead you in all truth. And this spirit is the spirit of the living God. This spirit is the spirit of Christ himself. And Jesus says, I am sending you my spirit. You will be baptized in my spirit. I will dwell in you and lead you to truth. This is infinitely better than the other option. His spirit is with us. And that's how we can know Jesus is alive in this moment as well. You can know the power of his presence. Do you know that? You can know today and in every moment that Jesus is alive. You can walk with him. You can have his own joy burning within your heart. And I suspect that some of you, you can sense it even now. As we go through the scriptures, as the spirit brings them to life, you're thinking this is amazing. But then a part of you is like, well, this is too good to be true. And you're wrestling between joy and Leros. You're wrestling between joy and idle tales. And so, what do you do? How do you respond to that tension? You say, Lord, help me. Lord, help me. Open my eyes. Change my heart. Open my ears. Explain to me what I can't seem to explain to myself. And you see, when we open the scriptures, when we break the bread, repeating the pattern that Jesus has demonstrated for us, his spirit is with us. His spirit is with us. What our passage shows is that Jesus mysteriously walks alongside us. He leads us into truth. He challenges us slowly and patiently. And Jesus will open our minds to understand the scriptures. He will lead us into his presence and he will lead you into the reality that he truly is alive and nothing can stay the same. Because it's true. He really is the long-awaited king, not just of Israel, but of the whole cosmos. He's Lord, he's God himself, and it's pure joy. And this is why death does not have the final say. Jesus does. And the king says these words to us, peace be with you. Peace be with you. In a culture that has amazing beauty at times and shocking brokenness. In a world of cynicism and disenchantment with, with political systems and realities. In a world where people's bodies are still decaying, where suffering still abounds throughout the globe. In a world that's striving to care well for humanity, but also failing to do so at the same time. Jesus is with us. And these realities of suffering and sin and death, they don't have the final say. He does, and he says, peace be with you. Does that mean we escape all these things? Of course not. Jesus says, if you follow me, I guarantee you suffering. But in the midst 
of that suffering, in the midst of our hurt, in the midst of our heartache, even in the midst of our confusion and doubt, where is Jesus found? With us. Because he's well acquainted with your sorrows. He's well acquainted with your grief. He's well acquainted with your struggles. In fact, he can name them better than you can yourself. And Jesus is walking with us, slowly showing us who he truly is, inviting us to make him the center of our lives. And he's giving us new life in every single moment. And the good news is that one day he will ultimately return and he will say to the entire creation, peace be with you. And sin will evaporate because peace reigns. Suffering will evaporate. Tears will be wiped away. Injustices will be righted. The creation that is groaning beneath our feet will finally rest because God's shalom and peace will rule the earth because the king is reigning. Do you hear him speaking to you this morning? Jesus is alive. We're proclaiming a truth. We're proclaiming news. Will you explain it from the ground up or from Christ with us? Jesus is alive. Is it idle tales or is it great joy? Jesus is alive. And it is good news of great joy for all people. You only need to put your faith and trust in him.